All right, everyone, we're excited to report this episode is once again accredited for CME. You will qualify for claiming continuing education credit just by having listened. So if that interests you, it's no cost. Just go to the show notes at icuscenarios.com. You got to click a link and there'll be a very short quiz to fill out. And then you can go ahead and receive your credit. Our thanks and please extend yours as well once again to Academic CME for sponsoring the credit for this episode and hopefully in the future as well. All right, let's get to it. Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Brian Bowling with you and with me, as always, my partner in crime, Brandon Odo. Hello. We have a special guest with us today for another case. Uh, Dr. Raymond Foley, he is an intensivist and pulmonologist and a professor of medicine at UConn Health in Connecticut, up near Brandon. Uh, he's the director of the MICU there, the director of the Crit Fellowship there, and also the director of the Pulmonary Vascular Disease Program at UConn. So welcome, uh, Dr. Foley, to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. We're excited to have you. I um, I, I worked with Dr. Foley for a number of years, and he he's... Uh, I think we can say a, a podcast super fan. He's a longtime follower, so it's great to have him. Oh, on. great, great. Well, good, good to have you on. Um, I think Brandon has a case for you, uh, so we'll jump right in and, and talk uh, about some pulmonary disease. Yeah, we wanted to explore the topic of, of pulmonary hypertension, which I think is a little scary for people who don't deal with a great deal of it. Um, and certainly some of these patients are really in the realm of hyper-specialization, um, you know, dealing with outpatient management of of PAH and things like that. But some of these patients turn up in regular old ICUs, and um, that's what we wanted to explore today, you know, what makes them special. So you are covering the ICU. When you hear about a patient that came in uh, the night before, you're seeing him on rounds the next day. By him, I mean her. It's a 71-year-old female. Um, She has a history of breast cancer, which is actually in remission. But in that setting, this was a, a good year or two ago, she developed multiple pulmonary emboli. Um, was hospitalized and treated for that, but did go on to develop CTEF, um, pulmonary hypertension related to that. Um, also has some degree of COPD, although perhaps not too severe, a little bit of HEFPEF um, and diabetes. So as of now, you know, she lives at home, um, fairly limited functional status. She, she ambulates okay on flat ground, handles most of her own ADLs, but she does get short of breath within, you know, climbing just maybe a flight of stairs. Um, it's been kind of quasi-stable lately. It hasn't been in the hospital for a year or two. She has been, you know, worked up for her CTEF. Uh, there was question about surgical intervention like pulmonary endarterectomies and things, but she wasn't thought to be a great surgical candidate. So it's not necessarily, you know, completely ruled out, but it hasn't been done yet and there's no plans to. She does take as medical management uh, Riosaguat, um, which she's been on for some time, and she has a you know inhaled labalama for COPD and so on. She also takes rivaroxaban for anticoagulation. So that's been the state she was in until the past five days or so, when she developed a fever and shortness of breath and a productive cough. She came to your ED, 
They found she was a little hypoxic on room air, satting maybe 83, 84%, um, borderline hypotensive, maps in the low 60s. Uh, they did a chest x-ray, which looked like pneumonia. So now they think she has a, a community-acquired pneumonia and, and perhaps septic from that. So she comes to the ICU. She gets put on high-flow nasal cannula, started on antibiotics, cultured, um, and now she's kind of maxed out on this high flow around 100% uh, with a flow of 40 liters and satting around 88% like that. So before we get into anything else, just tell me, I mean, th this acute presentation of pneumonia and sepsis is you know, bread and butter for any ICU, but knowing that this is a patient with known pulmonary hypertension, how does that make them different or special from anyone else who had this disease process? In what ways might they differ in how you think about them, what you're worried about, you know, the course you project compared to anyone else? All right. Well, it sounds like, Brandon, that's a complicated patient. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, is I would be curious to know what was her baseline echo or baseline hemodynamics, just to get a sense or a feel as to how severe her underlying pulmonary arterial hypertension was. Uh, because as you alluded to, patients with pH who then present with a concomitant illness, such as pneumonia and sepsis, septic shock, they can go to, into this potential RV death spiral, where the you can really get sick and get sicker and get into trouble real fast. So I'd first like to kind of get some baseline information on our underlying cardiopulmonary hemodynamics. I'll have a better feel for things. But my sense is, you know, she's, this is a, a, a sick person and someone that I have to look very closely at. So you're interested in a most recent echo would be the most useful thing? Yes. And then, then shortly after admission, whether it's in the ED or upon arrival to the ICU, then I'd be slapping the, the POCUS on her the focus on her and double checking, you know, to see what's happening right then and there at the bedside. What are the things you're looking at on, let's say, a sort of baseline echo before this acute admission that tells you something about how high risk this patient is or what you're dealing with? Yeah, so things that scare me on the echo, it's not so much the pressure estimate per se. Uh, certainly, that's a marker of disease, okay? But the thing that I'm going to be very interested in is the right ventricle. How does the right ventricle look? What is its size? What is its function? You know, does the RV have normal function or abnormal function? Um, what is the TAPSI? Remember the tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion. Is it normal or abnormal? I'd also be looking at the septum, trying to get a feel of sense as to, is it bowing into the left ventricle or not? So I'm looking at septal kinetics. And then also another potential scary sign, ominous sign for me, would be the development or the occurrence of a pericardial effusion. So patients that have a huge right heart, it's not working well, the septum is abnormal, and you have a pericardial effusion, boy, we're in for a potential long, long haul with this patient. And these are things so that I, you're looking at on their, their pre previous baseline studies. And then I yes. guess if you're repeating an echo here. So if they are already have sort of RV strain and things at their baseline, then you're more worried that they can you know, progress more quickly in the acute phase as well. Exactly, exactly. So it's very important to have the previous data and then get some up-to-date at the bedside information. And you said that actual numbers such as their pulmonary pressures are not as useful to you? Well, again, it identifies the disease, 
But I know, you know, in the office, specifically, patients will often want to know what their numbers are. And remember, it's a pressure estimate, and it's, it's somewhat, uh, it's somewhat uh, perhaps vague in terms of who did, the, who did the exam, who's interpreting the exam, uh, some of the underlying physiology of the patient. So the number is clearly, it's a factor, but I don't necessarily focus on that. The other thing as well, if we also teach our, our team and our, our house staff is that if you have a dropping number, that's also potentially. So I, I will keep that in mind as well, but uh, uh, estimated RV or PA systolic pressure that is falling, that could also be a potential ominous sign as well. So is that also why you asked for their echo, not necessarily for uh, a right heart cath, which you know presumably has been done, but I guess wouldn't tell you as much about the heart per se as just kind of numbers. Yeah. So it's, uh, again, the, the right heart cath is sort of our lung biopsy, like you barring an oncology model. So like all of our patients where pH is a consideration, where we're considering pH specific therapy, the right heart cath is our biopsy. So we always have to get those numbers, but I'll always be looking back. We'll be looking back on our prior echoes as well and comparing them with the data that we have at the bedside. Okay. So it proves the diagnosis, but kind of in an ongoing ways, and it's helpful to stratify things and understand where they're yes, at. Yes, okay. exactly. Does it matter when you're looking at this patient, you're deciding, you know, how you're going to, what to do and how much to worry? Does it matter what type or what the cause of their pulmonary hypertension is? I said this person has CTEF and, you know, perhaps some degree also of maybe a, a group two, group three contribution from their heart and COPD and so on. But I mean, does that matter or is it more about these other findings and how severe it is? I, it it does matter, I think, for the patients who are group one, because that's, if you will, the the sickest of the sick. But in general, having a diagnosis of pH, the data show, the medical uh, medical evidence shows that patients in general, if you have heart failure with with pulmonary hypertension, that pulmonary hypertension confers a worse prognosis. But the patients who have PAH and then the group four, the CTEP, those are it's sort of that one notch, that one next level above in terms of how sick they can be. So in other words, if you have a group three patient and they have moderate to severe COPD and they have a little bit of pulmonary hypertension uh, by echo or by cath, that wouldn't worry me as much. But if I have a group one patient, a group four patient, again, when you have significant elevations in pulmonary pressure and pulmonary vascular resistance, those worry me. Sort of takes you to that that next level. So group one would be kind of bad in its own right. Um, group two or three was kind of a complicating factor for heart failure or lung disease or something. Maybe not so bad. And then these group four people, yes. maybe with CTEF, is kind of in between. Yes. Although they can be fairly sick as well, you know, as, as the disease advances. And then as a general rule, I mean, we probably don't have time to get into the, the wide and weird uh, litany of medications people are using for these diseases uh, as outpatient, but is there a general approach on what you're doing with these things as inpatient? And maybe we can rule out these, the group one people with really hyper-specific things, but you know, this patient takes Riosaguat for this CTEF, right. and then there's other things that they could be taking. What are you doing in the inpatient setting with these meds? Are you generally continuing them, stopping yes. them, doing something yeah. else? So no question. So if someone has, again, group one, uh, group four, we would be continuing the specific PH therapy. Now, there may be situations in the ICU where you'd say, well, you know, you worry about absorption, right? You're, so they're on oral med, you worry about GI absorption, they may not be getting the proper effect of the medication. 
in this case, Rio Sigwad, then I might start to think about other specific type of therapies for a transition over to. But as a general rule, yeah, somebody on the floor, somebody in the intermediate unit, we're continuing specific PH therapy in the ICU as well. But then it's a it's all amount of like the drug delivery and whether you're worried about absorption. So someone like this who you know is sick uh, may get sicker, but kind of it's early. You'd probably just continue their current meds and then see where it goes. Yes. All right. So you're taking a look at this patient in the ICU. Um, as I said, still a touch hypoxemic on this high flow and then borderline hypotensive. Let's look at these issues, the hemodynamics and then supporting um, breathing and oxygenation. Um, again, looking at how these patients differ from other patients. So, you know, let's talk breathing. Yes. Are there specific considerations to supporting someone with pneumonia now that you know they have this baseline pH? Are there ways that you would manage them differently from anyone else who had pneumonia? So what we need to do is pay careful attention, if you will, to the ABCs. So in general, patients who have severe pH, we're going to try to avoid intubation. Intubation can be an arduous process and then fraught with potential complications. So we try to, if we can, if possible, avoid intubation. So we'll support oxidation with, let's say, a high flow system. Uh, if someone is or demonstrates elevated work of breathing, then we may consider something like CPAP or BiPAP with careful adjustment of the, the inspiratory and expiratory positive airway pressure. So in general, you want to avoid intubation, support oxygenation, because the hypoxemia can actually worsen the underlying pulmonary hypertension. And also, we want to try to avoid hypercapnia and also acidemia, because that can also affect the pulmonary vascular pulmonary vascular bed and contribute to more pH and elevation of pulmonary vascular resistance. So paying very careful attention, oxygenation, ventilation. That would be our Now, some of that sounds potentially contradictory. I mean, you said you want to keep their oxygenation and ventilation pretty tightly controlled, but you also don't want to innovate them. So if you run out of room on something like high flow, it sounds like, you know, non-invasive positive pressure is, is kind of in between. It's still positive pressure, but maybe it's better than being hypoxic. What do you, you said right. you kind of, do you aim to have lower pressures on their non-invasive or? Yes. Cause what happens is if you really ramp up pressures, whether it's through non-invasive or on the ventilator, that can also elevate your pulmonary vascular resistance. And also think of your PEEP effect. If we dial up on the PEEP, um, you know, without paying careful attention, you can also decrease venous return to the right heart. So that could be problematic as well. So you in general, we have to be very careful with airway pressures. So I think my default would be is the uh, high-flow oxygen system and trying to aim for the oxygen saturation of 90% or better. So that would be number one. Uh, two would be following up on our blood gases, making sure they're not hypercapnic. Um, so, but I think intubation is always in the calculus, but what happens is we have to try to put that in the, in the, on the back burner as much as we can because it's that... That peri-intubation period where someone establishes the airway, let's say it's our anesthesiologist, and you think you might be okay in the next several minutes, perhaps the pressures can tank, and you can go into that, as I mentioned before, that RV death spiral, and someone could die. Okay. Yep. So you're not necessarily targeting, you know, hyperoxia or abnormal Correct. CO2s. You just, you, you don't really want to let them slide. You know, I said this patient is sad of like 
88 maxed out on this high flow. Does that yeah. mean you might say, well, that's not really good enough. Maybe we'll go to it's, something like CPAP? Yeah, exactly. That's what I might think of then the next level of CPAP or okay. BiPAP. Whereas in another patient, you might say, well, they're borderline. Maybe we'll kind of see how it goes, but they don't have that Correct. reserve. Correct. Let's talk hemodynamics, which you alluded to. So again, borderline hypotensive already. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's not. How does this patient differ from someone who had normal pulmonary pressures? Yeah, because what happens is they may actually, when someone's hypotensive, uh, for whatever reason, but if you're hypotensive, you may underperfuse your right ventricle. So that can then lead to worsening RV ischemia, an imbalance between oxygen demand and oxygen supply, and then just worsen RV, RV performance. So that would contribute to that death spiral, as I mentioned before. So avoiding hypotension is key. So ideally, we try to target that MAP at 65 or above, but perhaps in these patients, you could think of even a higher MAP target. Again, it's not been well studied. That's the one caveat as well. Um, we don't have randomized control trials for this patient population, right? There's often it's expert opinion and clinical experience. Um, so there are good review articles in terms of management of patients who have PAH or critically ill. But in general, the consensus is maintaining that MAP 65 at the very least, if not higher, 70, MAP of 80. Um, I've seen some, some people, some experts suggest perhaps MAP plus an estimate of your CVP. So let's say your MAP, you're say 65, that you're targeting, the CVP is about 10. So perhaps you want to choose a, a map of 75 or more. But the idea is you want to promote RV, uh, RV perfusion. So that implies that the higher your CVP, the higher their map needs to be to perfuse their RV? Yes. One of the things that what we want to try to try to achieve is sort of reversing the abnormal PVR-SVR ratio that can occur in these patients. So remember, a normal SVR, systemic vascular resistance, may be about 1,000. A normal pulmonary vascular resistance may be about 100, let's say. Um, so what happens is patients with PAH or CTEP, that PVR-SVR ratio starts to swing in the other direction, such that the PVR is a bit significantly higher and the SVRs, you know, start to reach SVR territory. So you can actually get these super PVRs. And so what we're trying to do is trying to see if I could swing that back. Because what happens if the PVR is too high, that higher than the SVR, you're not going to perfuse the right ventricle. And again, you get into that RV death spiral, as we call it. So, you know, this patient, their maps, maybe 60. Mm. Maybe they're going to end up needing more support, like being innovated. I mean, what would you do? Would you put them on a presser? Yes. So what it's interesting. Our, yeah, the old standby had been norepinephrine. But one of the issues with norepinephrine is that it's great for the systemic vascular resistance, but at higher doses of norepinephrine, you may then start to see an effect on the pulmonary vascular resistance. So you can theoretically have higher PVRs, higher pressures. So norepi may be a good, a good place to start. But you know some of the kind of more current thinking, some of the more Recent medical literature that's coming out is there's uh, experts are stressing utilization of vasopressor, uh, of vasopressin, sorry. So vasopressin is very interesting. Again, used a lot with septic shock. Um, it's often our, our second agent that's utilized for septic shock. But in this patient population, what's neat about vasopressin is that not only will affect your systemic vascular resistance, but it can also theoretically have a neutral effect 
on the pulmonary vascular assistance. So in other words, higher dose of vasopressin shouldn't affect the PVR. And there's some lab data to suggest perhaps even perhaps may even lower the pulmonary vascular resistance through activation of the V1 and V2 receptor in the pulmonary arterial. So vasopressin seems to be sort of the, the presser to go to go to, your default presser in patients where you need that extra, you need that normalization of MAP, or in this case, a higher MAP that we talked about. What's neat is so people do use norepi. It's a time, you know, it's time. It's a time fashion. Like people have had this, we've used it for many, many years. But it seems like more and more now, uh, fields seem to be leaning towards using vasopressin for this specific patient population. Okay, so you want to support their systemic, you know, vasomotor tone without increasing their their pulmonary afterload as much. Is is there a role for inotropes, something to support the contractility of the right heart, kind of against that pulmonary afterload? Yeah, so the one that I like as well, kind of then as a, so we start off with vasopressin, of course, so we're following the patient very closely. But then the next agent that we might go to is perhaps epinephrine, because epinephrine, again, will have that SVR effect, shouldn't affect the pulmonary vascular resistance as much. And of course, then you have that beta effect, so you'll augment the right ventricular function. So I could theoretically see starting this patient on vaso and then adding epinephrine as well. Are there diagnostic tools that you would turn to to help titrate some of this? I mean, w- yeah. would you go early to something like an arterial line or even things like CVPs are that helpful or, you know, yeah. swan gans catheters or, yeah. you know, non-invasive cardiac output monitors? I mean, do these, and does your approach differ from, again, a patient who doesn't have pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think my, my go-to would be at the very least starting with an A-line, okay? Um, and it's, it, it's interesting in the critical care world, often we will default to the radial arterial catheter, but it seems like, remember, Brandon, we've had cases where often you can, you worry about, is that truly reflective of the mean arterial pressure, you know, as we get that far out into the systemic circuit? So one could consider perhaps if someone that's really, really sick, critically ill, perhaps putting an ephemeral A-line to start. Um, if we have, yes, having central access, so perhaps grabbing that CVP is helpful. But I think in these really sick, complicated patients with PAH and CTEP, where they're going down the tubes, I, I, my sense would be it's extremely helpful to have a PA catheter. Although, again, we don't have data on that to say, oh, you put that PA catheter in, you're going to guarantee to improve outcomes. We just don't have that. But in someone where we're titrating vasopressors, inotropes, um, you really want up-to-date bedside data right then and there. PA catheter is a consideration. I have to admit also these newer devices, the non-invasive devices, we have them here, uh, but you know, at our shop, we have them here. But the issue is, I, I'm not so sure I trust the numbers all the time. I think it's been pretty well validated in the surgical world and the operating room. Um, but I, I just don't know if I would trust the data that I'd get from that non-invasive assessment. You know, the devices that look at arterial waveform analysis, trying to estimate cardiac output, cardiac index. I don't know if I trust it in this sick a patient. Right. So at least starting with an A-line and then consideration for a PA catheter. All right. So you do these things. You start them on perhaps a little bit of vasopressin, maybe some norepinephrine, maybe a touch of epi. Um, you get an arterial line, a central line. Patient continues to get more hypoxic and labor. Yes. So you do decide you have to intubate her. Mm-hmm. Are there any approaches to the process of induction and intubation that may make this less risky? And what are you yes. worried about and what can you do to mitigate it? 
Yeah, so I worry about that as soon as you induce them, they're going to drop their pressure. So we have to be very careful of what we're using. Um, so, you know, at our, our, at our place, as remember when we were working together, you know, ketamine seems to be or seem to be uh, more widely utilized as an agent that won't embarrass, if you will, the cardiopulmonary hemodynamics as much. So ketamine perhaps as induction or tomidate, but trying to avoid something like propofol. Because propofol, we get a big push. You know, that could really be, again, send someone hypotensive and you're going to get into trouble. So I'm thinking atomidate slash ketamine for an induction agent. And then your, your vasopressors, are you going to try to augment their pressures a little more before it, this process? It, exactly, exactly, precisely. Because you anticipate that they're going to get potentially hypotensive on you. So ramping up, let's say the patient's on vaso ramping up on the dose there. They have epi as well going up on it. So that's where having that A-line in place is so key. All right, so you successfully get the patient intubated, which goes okay. Um, now you have them on the ventilator. Are there any differences in your approach to the vent from another patient? Yeah. Um, we talked about the non-invasive. Are you trying to limit right. things like PEEP? Yes, so when I'd start off, of course, with 100% FiO2, in this case, I'm not gonna be as if you will, so vigilant, like with our other ARDS patients, let's say, where we'd always try to, well, of course, we start 100% at PEEP, we ramp up the PEEP, and then try to titrate the FiO2 down. I think in this particular case with someone with COPD, someone with CTAP, someone in shock, this is one where I'd be very careful. So I'd keep that FiO2 at a higher range um, and then start to add in some judicious PEEP, starting perhaps with five, but I, I'm not going to ramp up like I normally with some of our other patients. So that's number one. So you're happy with them having a higher FiO2 so that yes. you don't have, you know, any episodes where they desat or things like that. It, and you maybe exactly. you can PEEP a little more. Yeah. yeah and, and so remember, uh, uh, oxygen is a, is a great vasodilator. So in this case, I'm going to be more liberal with the, with oxygen compared to our traditional ARDS patients or respiratory failure patients. All right, patients on the ventilator. However, your doses of vasopressors have been escalating and hemodynamically, she's looking worse. Where are you going with this process after kind of our initial agents? Um, maybe you have something like a, a PA catheter guide you, maybe you don't, but you know, what other drugs would you turn to and you know, what's, what are your goals with them? So I think at this point, you know, if you're in trouble, my sense would be is to think about a pulmonary-specific vasodilator. So this is one at our shop where we utilize inhaled nitric oxide. I think it's a great go-to uh, because what you're going to want to do is kind of reduce the pulmonary vascular resistance as much as you can, as much as it's feasible. So remember, the Rio Siguat may be on board if we slipped in an OG tube, and, you know, that's continuing. But, you know, again, you always worry about absorption. Also, Rio Siguat itself, um, you know, I, in terms of its overall magnitude of effect, you know, you, one can question if that's not as powerful or more robust, if you will, as, let's say, an inhaled agent or a parenteral agent. So uh, the Rio Siguat may be on board, but I'm going to be adding on an inhaled vasodilator. So here at our shop, we use nitric oxide. Other places I know use epoprostenol. The trade name is called Veletri or epoprostenol in the, the original formulation is otherwise known as Flolan. Uh, Valetri, it's the old-fashioned Flolan had to be kept chilled or cooled because otherwise it would de uh, decompose or be uh, destabilized. So Valetri, the newest formulation, is room temperature stable. So some shops will use that, uh, but here at our place, we'll, we'll utilize inhaled nitric. 
And what are you trying to achieve by adding these on? Yeah, so what I'm trying to, so again, I'll be starting that up. What I'm trying to do, because the other thing to keep in mind as well, is one could say, well, perhaps we should use an IV, like an IV prostenoid, an IV or parenteral agent. Yes, that, that could be a factor. There's something to consider down the road. But remember, with underlying COPD, if you have a parenteral agent, you can actually create more ventilation perfusion mismatching. So starting, let's say, something like epoprostenol peripherally, it's taking effect. But in the, the pulmonary milieu, you can actually get an imbalance between V and Q and thus worsening hypoxemia than worsening pulmonary hypertension. So I like the nitric, I like the inhaled epoprostenol because it's delivered to lung units that are better ventilated. And so you'll achieve a better marriage, if you will, between ventilation and perfusion. Whereas the shunted off lung units are not getting the drug yes. and therefore they're not vasodilating. Right. Now, are, is your goal here both to improve oxygenation and hopefully reduce the pulmonary afterload? Exactly. Yeah, because remember with the failing right ventricle, we have to pay attention to preload, afterload, and then also contractility. So remember, at this particular point, we're looking at afterload. So we're trying to reduce the mean pulmonary artery pressure, reduce that pulmonary vascular resistance to assist the failing right ventricle. You may be adding the contractility agent such as Abbey or perhaps dobutamine to the mix. Um, we didn't touch so much on preload, but by and large, patients who are in RV failure by and large, they may often be, need to be diuresed. So we had mentioned before about the CVP. Typically, we'll target CVPs about 8 to 12 in that range. So a patient like this who was kind of getting worse, mm -hmm. maybe you're watching their CVP and it's on the higher side. Yeah. You know, compared to other patients in shock, you'd be much more willing to start diuresing them, maybe delicately, but... Exactly. Yep. And, the, you know, with the inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, is your approach just you kind of, whatever you're using, you, you add it on and then you see what happens? I mean, you see if their hemodynamics improve or they improve on the ventilator or whatever? Right, exactly. And if you have a swan, is that, are you being guided by what, their pulmonary pressures? You'd like to see yeah. them come down? Exactly. I'd like to see that the PA pressure reduce, your pulmonary vascular resistance go down, the right atrial pressure also lessen, and cardiac output hopefully improves. Okay. And we talked about Inotropes. Um, you know what? How do these fall into this mix here? Is this something that, as they're getting worse, you would try adding something? Are you being guided by you know your swan or by an echo or something like that? Yes, exactly. So I think, like I said, we're we're maintaining the map. We're trying to achieve a little bit higher map using first agents such as vasopressin. Then, if patients continue to deteriorate, we'll be adding in something like epinephrine again for that extra, if you will, peripheral support. But then also something that may not have as much of an effect on pulmonary vascular resistance, and then also augmenting right ventricular function. And then as patients, if they continue to worsen, again, we have that inhaled specific vasodilator like nitric oxide. And if things are still, we're still patients in extremis and not doing well, hemodynamics aren't changing much, CVP, right atrial pressure is decreasing. You have evidence of other, let's say, organ hypoperfusion. Um, that's where you think about some, another inotrope, such as dobutamine. One problem with dobutamine, as you know, is that, again, it'll augment right ventricular function, improve your cardiac output. It shouldn't have much effect on pulmonary vascular resistance. In fact, it may lower it a bit, but it also could lower systemic vascular resistance. So you might have to play this dance between 
you know, if you start dobutamine, we're starting at, you know, at a low dose, titrating it up carefully, but then paying attention to our systemic hemodynamics. You may need to tweak that SVR a bit with your vasopressin or epi. Is there a role for milrinone? Uh, there could be, yeah. I kind of look at those sort of e equitably or equally between dobutamine and milrinone. Um, I kind of, in the medical world, I'm more familiar with uh, dobutamine, but I, when I've had uh, taken care of surgical patients in the past, yeah, we've used the open heart patients, I've, I'm comfortable with using milrinone as well. It has a similar effect. Is there a point when uh, it would be useful to consider a mechanical support for a patient like this, whatever whatever that may mean or whatever may be available. Yeah, I was just thinking that because at this point, you know, you have someone on vaso, you have someone at epi, we have a pulmonary specific vasodilator like nitric, and then you've, you've added on, let's say, milrinone or dobutamine. At this point, you know, this patient is dirt sick. And uh, my sense is I'd, I'd be making a call for perhaps uh, ECMO, thinking about ECMO, VA ECMO, because if this is someone that you deem uh, as potential. So remember, ECMO is, a, is not necessarily a destination therapy, but this is someone that you think that you could pull through and uh, can certainly help. That would be perhaps the next step via ECMO. The other interesting thing too is her CTAP. You know, you wonder about her underlying CTAP and whether it's something that potentially would be surgically amenable. So I'd be potentially put, you know, calling out to a local CTAP center um, and, you know, thinking about surgical interventions, perhaps VA ECMO, making those phone calls. Because if your shop doesn't, doesn't do, do those procedures, and that's something that you need to refer the patient. And that would be something they would consider even in this acute setting. I mean, maybe, in, you know, put them on ECMO and then finally do the surgery or something like that. Ex exactly. And it's probably it's a, a great point, Brandon, is that when, when we get to that point, it's probably best to see if we can prevent getting to that point. It's probably earlier in the schema where you think about making that phone call and letting that center know. Because as you know, once someone gets that sick, it's hard to transport them. Sure. And the right support for this patient would be VA ECMO, not VV and not something else like an impeller or something, because you need to really support the right heart the most. Yes. Yeah, exactly. VA ECMO. Sometimes house officers will ask, oh, what about an RVAD? But the right ventricular assist device wouldn't be a benefit here. Yeah, with the if you think of it as like a fixed outlet obstruction, you're kind of pumping that right ventricle against a wall of extremely high pressure. You need to skip the the pulmonary circulation entirely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. You know the if we kind of rewind a little earlier in this admission, maybe when you first saw them, what what is your sense for a patient like this in their prognosis in this acute setting? You know, does it differ profoundly from someone who didn't have these comorbidities? Or, you know, if you can get them over the acute illness with its various challenges, do they still have a reasonable chance of doing well? Yes. I mean, by and large, the, the diagnosis of pH, it, it confers a worse prognosis. So if you have COBD with pH, you're, you have a worse prognosis compared to COBD alone. You know, if you have interstitial lung disease with pH, it's worse than interstitial lung disease alone. So they just think of that in, in heart failure. Again, if you have heart failure with pulmonary hypertension, your overall prognosis or outcomes is worse. So it's, but, you know, the patients in general have a worse prognosis, but it's potentially reversible, potentially reversible. I would say too, that we always have to perhaps not overlook some of the more obvious things as well. You know, why did why did she decompensate? So that I, in this case, it appeared to be commuter-acquired pneumonia with 
septic shocks or treating the underlying problem. Some of these patients actually also can have systems issues. So if they had an underlying well, oral medications or if they're on a prostanoid, let's say, epoprostanol or triprostanol, which is delivered um, parenterally, sometimes there's systems issues where people have a pump malfunction and so they have this rebound pulmonary hypertension. That's, that's potentially remediable. Or there are medications that could affect them. Let's say their PCP put them on a negative inotrope, such as calcium channel blocker, beta blocker, those would be meds that you want to stop. Or now in the cough and cold season, cough and flu season, where we have the you know, readily available decongestants, alpha agents, those would be things, again, you want to potentially discontinue from your, your med list. But in general, pulmonary hypertension confers a worse prognosis. But we can, you know, with modern critical care, multidisciplinary critical care, these you know, these newer approaches that we talked about, it's potential for, you know, getting patients by. For a patient like this who had CTEF and now has these other issues, um, need they be, and if so, how important is it to continue their anticoagulation during this process? Oh, great question. Yeah, so for CTEP, yes, they should be anticoagulated. So that would, you know, I, I, I would say by and large that, that that's, that's an important aspect. Although in the critical care world, remember, we're doing procedures, we're doing things to patients that where anticoagulation can become problematic. So I think in this case, I'd probably switch the patient from the oral agent rivaroxaban and let's say a heparin drip. So if something did happen, there's a problem, I can turn it off. Given the, the risk for kind of deteriorating further and needing things like mechanical support and surgery and so on, a patient like this who comes in and you first see them early in this process, should you consider just transferring them to one of these, you know, pH centers that does all these things you know, before you get to that point? Or, you know, can enough of them do well that maybe you can put that off until things start to go south? Yes, by and large, it's, if they're at, let's say, a, a center where, you know, the staff, the crew, they're not, not comfortable, they're not really familiar with pH. It's, it's very helpful to transition those patients over to a pH center. So actually, the Pulmonary Hypertension Association now has credentialed centers here throughout the United States. So they've undergone a rigorous process where um, similar, let's say, stroke accreditation uh, or MI accreditation through the AHA, that there's metrics that we have to follow both on an outpatient and an inpatient basis for patients with established pulmonary hypertension. So that's another excellent point. So if you're at a place where you're not comfortable with PAH patients, um, yeah, get on the phone and... and so the, many of these patients who are established will already have been followed by one of these centers, right? I mean, the, yes. their complex history will be known somewhere. Yes. All right. Well, we'll cross our fingers and hope this patient did well. Um, what else should we say about this? Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to go back to nitric oxide and inhaled epiprostanol. So we use Villetri, um at our shop. We used to use inhaled nitric oxide and sometimes epiprostanol and back and forth. Uh, and then of course, you know, several years ago we used the original, the Flowland, uh, the IV and right. right fraught with fraught with problems. Um, Getting back to the inhaled, though, is there an advantage if if you're in a place where you really haven't had much experience with either of these and your administration comes to you and says, what do you want to set up? Is there an advantage to using one versus the other nitric oxide versus epiprostanol or should both of them kind of be in your air in your quiver and you pull them out patient specific? 
right? Uh, I'm not aware, Brian, that one is better than the other. I think that the big rap against nitric oxide is that it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I know at our place, we were able to look at our underlying contract that we had with the company. And it turns out that they had different contract opportunities so that if you paid a certain amount per year, you could use the nitric oxide kind of as as you will, um, PRN. Uh, there are other contracts where you could theoretically use a certain amount of nitric, but if you went above that, then you had to pay more. So I think a lot of shops tend would tend to shy away from nitric just because of the cost issue. But I like nitric. It's something that's it's easily applied to the ventilator circuit. Uh, we ramp it up. Uh, again, at our place, we've gotten comfortable with it, familiar with it. We know what to look out for, such as methemoglobinemia um, and and so forth. I think it's one of those things. I think if if you do have the opportunity, I think it's nice to have other options. Um, if so, having ibuprofen available, uh, let's say, for instance, there's multiple patients, like with our COVID pandemic, let's say there's some patients with ARDS and, you know, uh, nitric is you, you have it, the availability to do two nitric patients and you're Two tanks, two uh, two pieces of equipment are, you know, utilized somewhere else. And another patient down the hall, it's nice having that option of, let's say, switching or using epoprostenol. So like you said, I know some centers can do both. But it's interesting because this is also a therapy that we also need to think about because, remember, we can't keep a patient on inhaled, let's say, epoprostenol, inhaled nitric. It's something we have to think of as a bridge. And so what would happen, I'm going to be thinking then, am I transferring this patient to a CTEP center? You know, they're going to be putting, you know, for consideration of CTEP surgery. Uh, are they going to be put on VA ECMO? Or is it someone, perhaps I think that's getting better, and then I need to transition her over to another agent. So at that point in time, if someone is getting better, I might want to think, let's say, perhaps um, having them on IV epoprostenol or IV triprostenol. So that would, I kind of think of the inhaled route as a bridge. And then if uh, eventually patients are getting better, switch them over to then an alternative. So there are other options as well. We've talked about oral therapies. There's even IV sildenafil that we can use. That's Sildenafil is neat. Of course, it's a tablet, but also can be used in the critical care world, IV. Would you throw something like that in with a patient like this, just as... One more thing on the yeah, you you could again. You have to again. So IV sildenafil. You just have to worry about its systemic effects causing some hypotension. You also have to worry about the VQ mismatching issue. But again, if you thought that the patient is getting better, uh, then the idea would be you have to transition her to something else. So whether it's sildenafil or someone so sick like this, I think my default would be an IV therapy. Again, but maybe as they are, you're trying to wean those things off, then yes. you consider. Sorry, I was, I was just going to say that the IV versus PO sildenafil is that an absorption issue? Is that what you're concerned with more, or the titratability? Yes. Uh, the, the absorption issue. Yep. The absorption. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because I know we've used PO sildenafil in patients before in the ICU. Yeah. Um, to to pretty decent effect, but. I can see where that would be potentially problematic. Yeah, I was saying that the CTEP is an interesting wrinkle because that's something that's potentially surgically correctable. So that's the very interesting aspect to this case is that is this someone, is this a type of patient where you can theoretically think that surgery may make them much better or potentially cure them of their pulmonary vascular disease? So again, that's where you're networking with your pulmonary vascular disease programs in your neighborhood and uh, seeing if that's an option or not. 
All right, Dr. Foley, what else should we say about this topic? What have we forgotten? What are we doing wrong when we encounter patients like this? You know, what are the pearls to take away from this? Yeah, so I would think that just raising awareness that pH in and of itself is a potentially a bad thing. So you need to be on your game. You need to be ready. I think you also, you know, think about utilizing your uh, bedside focus because that's a neat tool, something that'll give you continuing information on your patient's status. Again, specifically with the right heart, how does it look, what's happening. Uh, Tapsy is another neat trick that you can utilize to, again, to assess patients and see if things are heading in the right direction. The other thing is paying attention to your pharmacology. So you want to look at preload, afterload, and contractility and um, consider each of those elements as we discussed. Think about any precipitating causes, uh, sepsis, infection. Those are usually, when the medical, I've re reviewed the medical literature uh, recently, I found that sepsis is the number one cause for patient deterioration in this population. So looking for uh, offending causes and identifying that. And then also, again, for patients that are in extremis, quite complicated, think about um, uh, whether this is something that you're not comfortable with, perhaps transferring the patient to a pulmonary vascular program um, and then also perhaps even if like, for instance, at our shop uh, where we are reasonably comfortable with pulmonary vascular disease, but things like CTEP surgery, lung transplant, we don't offer here in Connecticut. So that would be something where I need to discuss with uh, neighboring programs. Why don't we call it quits there? Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Please, everybody, remember, these are just opinions of those of us on the show. This is not meant as medical advice for any particular situation. Um, and I ho certainly hope that you are not using it to guide your care. Uh, just one more, one more thing to think about. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time.